Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. Man in a Hurry by Alan Nelson For twenty years I knew the pudgy little man with the thick lens glasses and bright tan shoes, and always when I saw him, he would be madly and urgently scurrying, as though constantly on his way to some appointment for which he was already late. I knew him, yet we never spoke. When, by chance, we would meet in a busy place or on the street, our glances would look for a long moment for some invisible sign of mutual recognition. Then he would rush past and disappear into the crowd. But each time I believed we would meet again, possibly the next day, perhaps in a year, maybe not for five. And we always did. For the pattern of our lives was somehow mysteriously linked, and involuntarily we chased each other through life, like the arms of a windmill, never overtaking one another, yet never losing the trail. I didn't even know his name. The first time I ever saw him was from the window of the 743 bus on my way to work one morning almost twenty years ago. He was trotting down the sidewalk, trying to beat the bus to the next stop. One hand was on his hat, and he wheeled his paunch ahead of him as though it weren't a part of his body at all, but had some separate existence of its own. I watched with a kind of dull detachment his frantic race, and when, finally, he boarded the bus, I remember his standing next to me, swaying on the strap, puffing and groaning like a man strung up on the torture rack, trying desperately to regain some hold on life. I saw the performance repeated every day for eight months. It never varied. At exactly 7.51, we would pass Azalea Street. It was then I would catch sight of him, trotting a block ahead of the bus, his round posterior bouncing, his tan shoes flashing. Then, as we overtook him, I could see the heaving of his chest, the wild roundness of thick lens glasses, the purple of his grim face, and the little legs churning like bicycle pedals. He never looked at the bus as it passed, but focused his eyes almost directly downward. Then, at the next stop, he would come pounding up, always the last passenger to get on. For eight months I watched him in his contest, and heard his round little body gasp next to me as the aftermath of his perpetual victory. But then my shift changed, and I took a different bus, and later when we moved, I lost track of the little fat fellow for two years. One afternoon, I was in a large department store, wandering with frustration from counter to counter, in search for a birthday gift. As I turned suddenly from one of the displays, he was in front of me. We stood there face to face for several seconds. He had not changed. The same round eyes, weirdly distorted by the thick lens, the roly-poly body, the tan shoes. He looked me full in the face. Not a twinkle of recognition crossed his countenance, yet I knew he knew me. Then in a flash he was past dodging and darting through the sluggish crowd. Idly, I drifted in his direction, but he was going too fast for me, and in a moment he had wiggled his way out of sight far down the crowded aisle. A moment later, 
I caught another glimpse of him as he stepped on the escalator. He waited a moment until the moving mechanism caught him and wafted him upward. Then, impatient with his progress, he started climbing, climbing two escalator steps at a time, so that the double upward motion seemed to shoot him ceilingwards at a tremendous pace, and he disappeared through the second floor like he had been shot there out of a cannon. It was three-thirty in the morning, a year and a half later, and I had been driving for three hours and still had another two hundred miles to go. The road was wide and clear. There were no other cars on the road, and I had the accelerator down to the floorboard, and the speedometer drifted lazily between eighty-three and ninety miles per hour. I saw the headlights slowly creeping up behind me through the rear-view mirror. I knew it was a police car, but I didn't care. It was too late to slow up. The car pulled closer and closer, and I realized that I could not outdistance it. There was no siren or flashing red light, however, as it pulled alongside and hovered there. Both our motors roared in a deafening and thundering unison. Slowly, very slowly, I, I turned my head. The light from the dashboard in the car opposite crawled up and illuminated the face of the little fat man. He had his hat pulled down, but the glare of the cowl lights made his thick lens look like two huge marbles. That's all I had time to see. The hat, the puffy cheeks, the two big marbles. He looked at me for a moment, as the two thundering autos hung there opposite each other. He did not smile. There was no recognition. But I knew he knew me. Then slowly he turned his head back to the road, and gradually his car forged ahead, and the red tail light disappeared far down the highway. Once he sat across the table from me in a Jean Compton's restaurant, shoveling big spoonfuls of veal stew and chunks of bread down, swallowing it unchewed, as though it were chocolate pudding. Then, without a smile or nod, he pushed his plate back and rushed out. Once, about a year later, he sat opposite me at a writing desk at the St. Francis Hotel, writing furiously. He just couldn't seem to get the words down fast enough, and the scratch and splatter of the steel pen could be heard across the room, and his arm jerked convulsively. While he was licking the envelope, he looked at me a moment, then disappeared. Two years later we bowled together in the downtown alleys. I was with a group of friends— but as usual the little man was alone, playing some kind of a contest with himself in the alley next to ours. He wasn't a very good bowler, and his form was terrible. He couldn't bend at the waist. Instead, he squatted vertically, and when he let the ball go, he would practically sit on his bright tan shoes. Yet he bowled with a passion and frenzy such as I shall never forget. Without pause or hesitation, he would send the heavy ball skidding one after another down the shiny maple strip, until I thought the little fellow would topple over with exhaustion. Three times he almost killed the pin-setter by crashing the ball into upright pins before the nervous boy at the far end could clamber back to his perch. He kept score, but I doubt if he could see to the end of the alley with those thick glasses he wore. I caught his eyes several times during the evening— but there was no light of greeting in them. 
Almost before the last ball reached the pins, he was putting on his coat and, breathing heavily, laid the correct change on the counter, then jogged up the stairs and out into the night. I bumped into my friend many times during the next few years. A fleeting glance, and then he would be gone. But the last time I saw him was at Pacific Avenue and Van Ness Avenue. Just previous to this last look at him, I had been walking past Grison's Steakhouse, intending to cross Van Ness Avenue. I had my eye on the green go signal, and I was moving along the sidewalk at a fast pace, trying to make the curb before the light changed. There was another man also trying to make the light, and somehow we had fallen in step together, stride for stride, both our eyes on the green go sign, both wondering if the signal would change before we reached the corner. He was a tall, lanky fellow, and the briefcase he carried flapped noisily against his legs. There was an insistent clicking of leather heels on the pavement behind me, and, half-turning, I recognized the little fat man bounding along ten yards behind us. I thought of speaking, but I was too intent on making the go sign, and so continued on. By this time, the man at my side and I had reached Van Ness Avenue together, and, still in step, were about to step off the curb. "'I beg your pardon,' a voice called in back of me. I stopped short and turned around. It was the little fat man motioning as he tried to catch up to me. The tall man with the briefcase continued across the street. Then the bell clanged and the signals changed. "'Could you tell me the time?' the little round fellow asked breathlessly. I was standing there on the curb, fishing for my watch, when the delivery truck smashed into the stranger with the briefcase who was now halfway across. The driver of the truck, spinning down Van Ness at a fast clip, had just squeaked through the signals as they turned. It was no one's fault. It was inevitable, unavoidable, one quarter of a second, one way or another, would have allowed the man and truck to go their respective ways. I stood there on the corner and watched, and the whole thing was as clear and vivid as though it were happening in slow motion. No swerving, dodging, or careening could have prevented that meeting. The man and truck were just suddenly there. They were there together as though each were attached to separate ends of some invisible giant rubber band, which now, suddenly released, had snapped the two together. I knew he was to be killed even before the truck smashed and dragged his body half a block toward the bay, and I also knew that, except for freak of timing, I too would have been smashed and dragged that half block. D "'Do you have the correct time?' the little fat fellow repeated. He acted as though he hadn't seen the accident. I looked at my watch. It's exactly 3.17, I said. Thanks, he replied. Th thanks very much. I was trying to think of something to say to the man, to thank him for hurrying after me and holding me on that corner with his silly question. I wanted to thank him for rushing down the street that last few seconds— for rushing through his meal at Compton's last year, for driving madly down the dark highway ten years ago, all so he could be on time to meet me on this corner, 
and ask me the hour of the day. You got here just in time, I said. I hurried, he replied. Then he turned, and it seemed as though he strolled, leisurely, down Van Ness, as if his time were his own, and he had a carefree hour to spend. Hello ladies and gents, Ian here. Be sure to pop on over to our YouTube channel or Facebook page for regular updates. If you'd like to support our work, please consider taking a look at our Patreon or Bandcamp pages, or search for us on Audible. You'll find links to everything on our website, horrorbabble.com forward slash links.